Good morning, as I, as I told Pat as he walked in. <laughs> People watching online, was this recorded earlier? What's he talking about? Um, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11 this evening. And um, we left off at verse 15 um, last time we were together. I have, uh, we're, we're going to get started. I want to tell you, I was struggling with this a little bit because we're, you know, typically when you teach, you have kind of a message or some points you want to get across. And we're definitely going to do that as we go through here. Um, there's a couple of sections that I'm going to do maybe a little sidebar conversation. I hope, I hope it doesn't deviate or distract from the attention, but one of the things that interests me is like addressing skeptics on the Bible, and we're going to kind of run past a couple of uh, what people would call like a contradictions or apparent contradictions, and so I might address those as kind of a sidebar. I don't think it could be distraction, though, so I pray it's not, uh, but we'll, we'll do that as we're going through it, and, and hopefully the Lord will use it to equip you, um, but also you don't lose focus of uh, the big picture of what the Lord's trying to teach us through his word tonight. Um, so let's uh, pick up. We were obviously here in the life of David looking at, uh, you know, the first half of chapter 11, um, David's adulterous relationship with uh, Bathsheba. Um, and we kind of left off last time where David sent a letter in the hand of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to the front line of the battle to give to Joab, and in the letter contained uh, David's command that would ultimately condemn Uriah to, to death, and that's where we pick, we'll pick up tonight um, in verse 16. So we'll start out there, uh, chapter 11, verse 16. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, when you have finished telling the matter of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubbasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of the millstone on him from the wall so that he died in, the, in Theobes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now, what I want you guys to realize here, so this is obviously Joab sending the messenger back to David to give the status of what's going on in the war. Um, the account that Joab is talking about is in Judges chapter 9. Abimelech, one of the judges of Israel, this is how he dies, right? It's a poor military tactic. Uh, they were battling outside the city. They were winning the battle. They were approaching the city. And as they were approaching the city, a woman dropped part of a millstone, it says, onto Abimelech and crushed his skull. Uh, while he was dying or in the throes of death, he asked his armor bearer to thrust him through because he didn't want to die by the hands of a woman. Of course, what's kind of funny as a side note is Joab is saying that wasn't it he that died by the hands of a woman. So he'll always be known as, known as that guy. But it was a known, you know, we know that Joab knows the scriptures. He's reading through Judges. He, he's learning probably from Joshua and from Moses and all of these previous battles that Israel has had. And he knows this is a bad military tactic. And he also knows that David's probably going to condemn the commander in charge if he hears that this tactic was used, that they should have known based on Judges not to do this. But Joab says, by the way, tell him Uriah died also. What Joab is saying is, I did this bad military tactic to meet your command to make sure Uriah died in battle. 
which is kind of interesting to think about because, you know, when you look at this on the surface, you could say, well, you know, David, you know, or you could say, well, you know, people die in battle, right? You go to war and people die in war and Uriah was put to the front line. You, so, but someone's going to be at the front line. So people are going to die anyway. So if not Uriah, it would have been somebody else. But the reality is it wouldn't have been somebody else. Uh, they would have never been that close to the city if David hadn't sent the command and nobody would have died. It wouldn't have just been Uriah, but also some other men that were with him uh, that died as well. Now, we, um, one thing I wanted to kind of note, and, you know, we see the David's progression here, right, which you know, we talked about last time where it just started with a quick look and then it turned into a gaze. And now we see this progression to where Uriah is killed because of the command of David. Really, David committed murder, right? And we can look at it that way. And that's the way God looks at it. And we'll see that in chapter 12 is that David committed murder. He committed adultery, obviously lust. Um, and I don't think when David took that first glance or even that second glance, he realized the depths he would have gone at this point where Uriah the Hittite is now dead also. Um, and this just reminds me of three places that sin will take you. Um, it'll take you farther than you want to go. And uh, I don't think David ever thought he would go this far to cover up his sin, but here he is. And number two, it will keep you longer than you want to stay. And, you know, you could think about this in multiple applications, but by the time we get, we're going to get a little bit into chapter 12 tonight. By the time we cross over into chapter 12, when David eventually repents, it's a good nine months to a year, approximately, um, that David is in the state of rebellion um, and unrepentant before the Lord. And three, it'll cost you more than you ever want to pay. And uh, the, what David reaps from this entire saga is very dear. I mean, he ends up losing um, ultimately four children from it. Um, if you look all the way through kind of his life and what, what takes place um, as we go through Second Samuel, you'll see that. Um, but also, uh, you know, many other things that David lost because of this. And so... What's enticing for a season, season or enticing in the moment, the cost is so much greater, and we, always, we don't often understand what that looks like um, until we're far into it at times. Um, all right, so verse 22. So the messenger, so this is the messenger that Joab sends. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archer shot from the wall at your servants and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And so um, what we know is at this point, or what we think we know is David probably getting this report. I mean, we're going to see in the next couple of verses, he's probably thinking mission accomplished in a way. I mean, in the fleshly sense, he's thinking mission accomplished because um, Bathsheba is pregnant and Uriah is dead, her husband. And so he's none the wiser of what happened. Um, he can now take Bathsheba into his house as his wife. They could have a baby. And the people of Israel can celebrate what a great king taking care of his military men and the wives, the, the widows that are behind. Um, so in David's mind, I think he's thinking mission accomplished at this point that Uriah is dead. In verse, or I'm sorry, Hebrews 4.13, let me share with you this verse. Help if I turned it on. There we go. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And um, 
David certainly knew this, but obviously he's operating in the flesh in his own wisdom. Uh, But this is a good reminder for us that there is nothing hidden, right? There's no... There's no plan we can conceive of to hide our sin that's truly hiding our sin um, in front of the one who matters, right, in front of God. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And I was thinking of this as it relates to David, because David, you know, I think Pastor Victor mentioned a a kind of a common quote of... um, Absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? So David, he was the king, so he was able to carry out this charade, right? Because he's the king. Normal people probably wouldn't be able to carry this whole thing out (laughs) like he did. But what's in the heart, right? The Lord searches the heart. And, um, you know, our heart could take us to dangerous places where David was, he just had the power to carry it out, right? I mean, you know, wishing that somebody was dead so that you could get out of that marriage, right? Stuff like that. I mean, just because David had the power to do it doesn't mean that it was, it's not in the heart of man to go to the same place that David goes. And the Lord searches the heart, not just the actions. Um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul also tells us that God will disclose the purposes of the heart. So all of those things will come to light. And um, it's important how we not only conduct ourselves, uh, but also what our thought life is like, because it'll lead to actions. It'll lead to um, this unfruitful life that David is living through right here. Um, all right, so verse 26. When the... Wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, right? Heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to the house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And this is the first time we get kind of the Lord's thought on the entire chapter right here at the end, that it displeased the Lord. I did look up to see kind of what was the typical mourning period for something like this, just out of curiosity. I don't know how relevant it is, but it's, I, I've read it's either seven days or 30 days. So depending on the relation and the, the, according to Jewish culture, of course. So needless to say, there was no grass growing on the grave yet, right? So it was relatively recent after Uriah's death. And um, again, I think during this time, David is more concerned about his image. You know, certainly he had the thought of being attracted to Bathsheba. He takes her in as his wife. But he has this great image in front of the people. And his pride, I think, is what is holding him back during this season from repenting um, truly. And... um, this could be a big problem for us. I know in the church, you know, many of us have, you know, we go, we say, how are you doing? And we're doing good and all this stuff. But a lot of times it's our pride from holding us back on struggles we have to share with a brother or sister in the congregation because we're, we don't want to display that image that we are weak or that we struggle with things. And, uh, David, especially being the king of Israel, being the one that defeated Goliath, being, you know, the one that was not Saul, right? That was not fleshly like Saul. Um, he had this image to uphold. And I think this is what really held him back from repenting and returning to the Lord. And as we transition to chapter 12 here, I wrote in my Bible approximately one year. Uh, but during this one year, you know, some people say, well, David was just living the good life. You know, he had gotten away with it. The, the gig was up and, uh, you know, all this plans worked out the way he planned them and everything was good and he was okay. He was king. Um, others will point to the Psalms and I put in, and this is kind of what I tend to believe, Psalm 32, 3 through 4. It says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groanings all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. And, you know, think on these things. 
And uh, this is what I think David was going through. This is a tough season. And as a believer, when we live in sin, when we're involved in sin and we're non-repentant, we're not willing to give that up to the Lord. We're not willing to apologize to our brother and sister in Christ or apologize to someone that we've sinned against. Um, we're, we're put into an awkward place because the Holy Spirit lives within us, who dwells within us. And we have, you know, I think this is what David is experiencing is this misery. You can't really have true joy. You can't really have true joy in the world because you have the Holy Spirit within you. And that time you're trying to spend with the Lord is hindered by this sin that you're unwilling to repent. And so this one year gap, I think David is struggling with this, but he himself did not come to the Lord, right? The Lord, as we see in chapter 12, right here at the beginning, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And there's two things I think of here. One is I'm thankful that the Lord sends, you know, um, a good friend to David in this case. Uh, Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And uh, I think it's important that we listen to the exhortations, especially from our friends, our family, those who love us. Um, Even though it may be hurtful and shock us, we should pray about them and listen to what they have to say. And I'm thankful, you know, Nathan was, we know, was a good friend to David. Last time I was teaching, I think it was chapter 7, the Davidic covenant, Nathan and David were kicking it, talking about the things of the Lord. David was saying, I want to build the temple for God. And Nathan's like, oh, do what, what's in your heart. You know, the Lord is with you. Go and do this thing. Of course, Nathan spoke too quickly. But um, either way, they're hanging out. They're friends. They're hanging out together. Later on in his life, David will name one of his sons after Nathan. I, I believe it's called Nathan. So I'm assuming he named it after the prophet Nathan. Um, so I think they were pretty good friends. And, um, but it brings up another side of the story, which was Nathan. Did Nathan not know what was going on for a year? You know, so I, I kind of think of that too. I'm like, well, what was Nathan doing? Um, because certainly there had to be, and I think, you know, Pastor Victor was talking about this last time. There had to be some rumors going around the, uh, the, the courtyard of the king, right? Because he called people to bring Bathsheba and people knew about what was going on. Uh, did Nathan not know this whole time? And that's a possibility. You know, maybe, maybe Nathan had business, he had ministry business going on, and he didn't know. The other possibility is just the plain fact that he was waiting on the Lord this time. You know, maybe David's heart wasn't ready, and Nathan knew about it, but he was just waiting on the Lord. And you could see right there in the beginning, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And this is a good advice for us. I mean, when we're called to exhort somebody. Um, some of us have that, that uh, gift, I guess, you know, and we have discernment and a gift of exhortation. And, um, but it's important to do that in the Lord's timing, you know, because only God knows the heart and only God knows when that heart is ready to receive that exhortation. And so this time versus chapter seven, Nathan didn't go too abruptly into the situation. He waited on the Lord. And in this case was about a year that he needed to wait, but he did it as he commanded. So verse one, then uh, chapter 12, then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, there were, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. Now, Nathan's going to jump into a, to a parable here. What, Nathan knows as a parable, David thinks is a story, right, about a real account. So, you know, many of you know this account, but that's kind of the, the backdrop, right? Verse 2, the rich man had exceedingly many flock and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb named Bathsheba. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate out of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. 
But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So you see the picture, the poor man's got one lamb and treats it like a daughter. Um, Obviously the correlation with Uriah and Bathsheba and the, the, I, I guess maybe it was popular in that time that the sheep would be like pets today, right? So, I mean, some of us treat our pets like this, our dogs and chickens and other animals people have. <laughs> um, but in this story, it's a sheep. And this aroused David's anger so much. Uh, verse 5 says, So David's anger was greatly aroused against this man. And he said to Nathan... As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And as he, I'm sorry, verse six, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, let me just ask you guys a question. In the law, which David was familiar with, is capital punishment appropriate for killing a pet of someone else's pet. <laughs> Just talking about the law. Not unless it's a chicken. That's right. <laughs> yes, that's right. Not in, yeah, there's some except no. In the law, capital punishment is not appropriate. And uh, so you could see here this particular story that David thinks is a story of this parallel not only aroused David's anger, but he was ready to judge in excess of the law, not just the law. Now, he does bring up the law. Exodus 22, 1, we read, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So David knows knows the law because he he pulls out the fourfold at the end. Right, So he knows what the law is, uh, but then he goes in excess of that and decides the man deserves capital punishment for what he has done. And, you know, I think uh, that this is just a, an account of, you know, David, David's looking at himself in a, a little bit. I mean, the reality is, is that what, what this man did was nothing compared to what David did, right? So... Uh, Nathan, by the Holy Spirit, I think, gave him this parable that would stir up David. Uh, but this man stole a sheep and killed it and prepared it for his, this, this traveling, this man that was traveling. What David did was steal Uriah's wife, slept with her, had a, you know adulterous relationship, uh, killed Uriah, right? So you see the comparison is not really that comparable, um, but it was enough to get David's attention, we'll find out. Um, verse uh, 7, probably one of the most shocking statements in the Bible, I think, for being exhorted. Uh, verse 7 says, Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. And I look at, uh, <laughs> I'm I, trying to imagine like what David would have felt like in that moment. You know, I think he realized it right away, the connection, um, but how it turned on him where he was ready to point and take out judgment. And then all of a sudden it came back to him. You are that man. I heard this story. I don't know. I don't really know if it's true, but it's a good story. So I'll tell it. Um, there's this uh, pastor at a, at a church and the church was an, kind of an elder run church and he had struggled with the the elders and with the deacons in the church. And it was just, just nothing was, you know, the the Lord wasn't, um, they just weren't allowing him to do really anything. And eventually he resigned and he said, I can't work at this church anymore. And he left the church and they brought on a new pastor and the new pastor, after a few months, he said, everything I propose, everything I want to do, you guys shoot down. I mean, this is ridiculous. And so he teaches his message. And at the end of the message, he said, and you guys are a dead church. And he tells them that. And because of that, today at 3 o'clock, we're going to have a funeral service. And uh, 3 o'clock, and we're just going to bury this church. It's a dead church. So we might as well have a funeral service. And so 
everybody at the church and everybody had, that had gone to the church in the past by three o'clock had heard about what was going on. And so all of these people show up to the church for this funeral service. And the pastor is up front with the, the casket there, has the service for this dead church. And then he asks everybody to line up and give the last respects. And as they walk by the casket, they look in the casket and what do they see? There's a mirror. Right? And the casket there was the dead church. And uh, that's those people walking by seeing that mirror is probably a little bit like what David felt right here. All of a sudden, he saw those fingers pointing right back at him. And I don't know if that's a true story, but I, I, I think I had some guts if it was. Uh, but anyways, so we see uh, David here. Gets this message. So verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wife into the keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandments of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, let me ask you guys a question. Did David kill Uriah with the sword? In a physical sense? Okay. So not not physically, but that's the way the Lord saw it. I mean, that's from the prophet Nathan. The way the Lord saw it from a spiritual sense is that David killed Uriah with the sword directly, right? And that's where, you know, that's why I said back before that David is the one that, even though he sent a letter to Joab and Joab carried it out, you know, and David was probably thinking maybe for a little while that my hands were clean of this because I didn't actually do it. But the way the Lord saw it is that David was the one that killed Uriah with the sword. Um, Now, I want to, like I had mentioned when I started, I want to address verse eight. And this is a little bit of a sidebar. Because verse 8 is used by people to either one thing, one or two, two ways that are incorrectly used by people. One is that it, to justify polygamy, that the Bible justifies polygamy. Or two, to say the Bible contradicts itself in some places says polygamy is okay and they use this verse. In other places it says it's not. And so they say the Bible's full of contradictions and here's an example And this is where they come up with verse 8. So I'm going to read verse 8 to you again. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if 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 that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Now, Genesis, um, we all know what the Bible says about marriage, right? So Genesis 2.24, right in the beginning, therefore... Amen. How many is that? The men. Amen. One shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, wives, or no, wife. Okay. One man, one woman, and they shall become one flesh. Right? So that's very clear from the beginning. And even to add to this, in Deuteronomy 17 17, when the law is being laid out, God addresses the kings specifically, the kings of Israel, and he says in Deuteronomy 17, 17, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire himself excess silver and gold. So God was very clear in his word. And so when we see verse 8, where it says, I gave you your master's house, talking about Saul, and your master's wives into your keeping. Does this contradict what the Bible teaches? And the simple answer is no, (laughs) Um, because people take this verse too far. They're reading too much into it. All All the Lord's saying through the prophet Nathan and what's in reality, we don't have any account of David marrying Saul's wives. 
what he's what is being said here is that these wives are given to your keeping to your care right not you know don't bring it into the marriage <laughs> there, there's no account here showing that this is of marriage right or of any sort of relation like sexual relation here and they'll also take the end of verse eight where it says i would have given you much more to meaning many more wives right <laughs> and that you're skipping over the whole context when you do that where it's talking about you know giving you the house of judah and the house of israel right all this land and the kingdom that he has established through david he would have given you much more if you would have if you would have followed his commandments right so Verse 8, I don't know if you guys, hopefully there's no confusion here, but I wanted to put your mind at ease, does not say that uh, God told David to marry Saul's wives. Um, All right, back to the text. So uh, verse 9, or verse 10, I'm sorry, verse, uh, did we get verse 9? Let me go through verse 9 again. Uh, Why have you despised the commandments of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Uh, You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Um, We can't, you know, what we get here is we can't despise the commandments of God and have fellowship with God at the same time. You know, I was talking to David in the car on the way over here. And I was just asking him a little bit about Bob Jones and, you know, some of the people there. And, you know, there's a lot of people that have a good testimony, but of course at any college, there's going to be people that, you know, are sent there by their parents and they just, you know, they, they don't always like following the standards of Bob Jones. We'll just say that. Right. And so we were talking about that a little bit and how, you know, following the commands of God, you know, he, I think his words were, Uh, I have freedom to do, you know, like the American way, right? I have freedom, you know, this is my freedom to do this and my freedom to do that. And so um, if that's the case, um, do we really, you know, 1 John 1, 6 says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, there may be some ignorance Right, if we're not following the commandments of God. So, but once you're availed to that, once you know what the scripture says, are you going to follow the commandments of God or are you going to follow your own way? Right. And that's the choice that people have to make. And this is the fruit of their, um, their walk with the Lord. Um, verse 10 in 2 Samuel. Now, therefore, the sword. This is Nathan talking to David again. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. And this is specifically David's house we're talking about. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it in secret, but I will do these things before all of Israel, before the sun. So David, verse 13, said to Nathan, these are some of the most powerful words right here. I have sinned against the Lord. And what a difference between David and Saul we see here. I have sinned against the Lord. Um, I like this because I think it's too easy for us when we have transgressed against the Lord, when we have sinned against the Lord, to do partial repentance. (laughs) Do you know what I mean by that? Um, Lord, I screwed up, but... There's a lot of, there's a lot more to the situation, you know, Bathsheba, anybody in my situation would have probably done the same, you know, so you start carrying on. And I love the brevity of what David, it's just flat out, 100%, my fault, I did it. He didn't say we did it. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. And I think there's a lot we can learn from that. Um, 
you know, he, he certainly could have made an excuse to Nathan here, and um, he chose not to, right? He chose to hear his, his brother out and listen to him and recognize his sin and uh, repent of it. Um, Psalm 51, I'm going to read uh, the first few verses of Psalm 51, which is a psalm that David wrote contemplating this event, right, with his um, Nathan confronting him about Bathsheba and Uriah. Uh, so verse, I'm just going to read the first four verses, verses one through four, uh, Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. You know, there's two Psalms, Psalms 51, Psalms 32, that you, could, you can kind of read on your own, but it's during this season of David's life, and it really shows you the heart. You know, the immediate is, I have sinned against the Lord that we see here in 2 Samuel, but his contemplations are written down in the Psalms, and we could see, you know, I, th- I don't totally know the ways of the, you know, of God, obviously, uh, but right away what Nathan's response is, um, we're going to get some additional things that happen because of David's going to reap what he sows, but we see the immediate response here at the end of verse 13, and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. And the, the reason why he says you shall not die is because he committed murder and adultery, which are both capital offenses. Um, but he was granted mercy from those. And, you, you know, the, the most incredible part, though, is the beginning where the Lord has put away your sin. And I think of that right away. I mean, I think it's more of the issue of the heart, right? Now, David said, I have sinned against the Lord, but I, I can almost see in the, the spiritual realm, as soon as David's heart turned and repented in, inside of him, that that sin was forgiven. And then just those few words come out after the fact, um, which is just incredible. You know, how much time we can spend in our sin and realize how quickly you can turn that corner at any point. But yet, because of our pride, we spend that year sometimes or five years or 10 years just wallowing in sin. But that quickly, in the middle of a verse, it can just turn around. The Lord will forgive us. And we're restored to him and brought back into fellowship with him. Um, Verse 14, and we'll read through 14 and 15. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, The child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. Now, this is the the second one I wanted to talk about. And I want to read this verse to you first. The Bible says, Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. And, you know, this is consistent with what we read in Romans, right? The wages of sin is death. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear, bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Right? Um, pretty clear biblical concept that... My sins don't carry on to my children. My father's sins don't carry on to me. I'm responsible for my life and um, my sin before the Lord individually. And this is uh, the concept we're getting here in Ezekiel. So the 
question is, what about David's son? And there are a few answers to this. I, I tend to um, think of it this way. One is that God judges, God judges the soul of men, right? And so there's a couple of things to think about. One is, did this, the, when we think about the, the judgment upon this child, the son of Uriah's wife, the Bible says, and David, um, is we think of sometimes in the physical realm, right, that he died, right? That's a terrible thing. But ultimately, the most important judgment is the soul, right, the spiritual side. Were those sins that David did, were they accounted to his son? Well, no, right? When, when this child stands before God, is he going to be responsible for what David did? I think the simple answer is no, right? Obviously. But it still seems kind of extreme to us, right? That this would happen to David's son. And some would say, well, well, maybe that's just, you know, he was sick anyways, and the Lord just chose not to save him. But at the end of verse 15, it says, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. And I think the... Um, the answer, in my mind, and I, I may be wrong, is that David's life is much like, you know, much like Moses' life. He had a very important role in the Messiah, in God's plan. Um, Moses, when he was in the wilderness, he had this issue with his temper as is associated with striking the rock. And you guys might remember the story where you know, the, the children of Israel needed water. God said the first time to strike the rock and uh, water will come forth out of the rock. Now, the rock is, and the Bible clearly says this, is a picture of Jesus Christ to the children of Israel, right? And they brought forth living water as Jesus Christ brings forth living of water for us. And so God was painting a picture for future generations. And the striking the rock was Jesus's death on the cross, that he had to be stricken for this living water to come forth, for the church to be birthed out of him, right? And so he had to be stricken for this. But the second time when God tells Moses the same situation, he says, just speak to the rock. Don't strike the rock, speak to the rock. Because Jesus only needs to die once, right? Then you just go and ask him, right? But Moses in his temper, what does he do? He strikes the rock. Now, as, you know, humans, and as we look at the situation, we say, well, he hit a rock with a stick. <laughs> you know, what's the big deal? And Moses' punishment was that he couldn't enter the promised land. That seems pretty extreme for hitting a rock with a stick. But he, he destroyed the picture. God was trying to create a foreshadow so people would understand that the Messiah, when it was on the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, that this, his sacrifice there was done. He didn't need to be put on the cross again. Right for future generations to be forgiven. It was over. And so Moses messed up. And I think David, this particular example, God's making a correction here, I think, because of what's going on with David, is David is also a foreshadow or a picture of Christ. Um, this whole incident with Bathsheba and uh, Uriah well, how does that foreshadow Christ, right? He messed up the picture. He goofed it up, right? He muddied the water, so to speak. And, um, and this child, I don't, I don't know. Only God has foreknowledge, right, of what's going to happen. Um, but this child is a, um, a byproduct of that uh, mess up. And the public image of what was going on with David was very important, that he repented, um, that this was known publicly, that this was not, um, how God intended this to happen, right? That he would accumulate wives and grab any woman he wants, right? That this is not what God would want. And so I think this is somewhat of a special situation uh, because of that. And um, we don't, obviously don't know the future, what would have happened with this child. But we do know at the end of, um, you could just kind of look down uh, chapter 12, verse 23, um, David's done fasting. I'm not going to get through all this tonight. But David is done 
um, fasting for this child. The child dies, and he says in verse 23, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, David talking about his son. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So he will not be raised from the dead. But I think David's saying here that I will go to him. I will be reunited with him in heaven uh, one day, but he will never come back to me here. And, um, you know, if there's, to me, this is, I don't know if David fully understood the concept of heaven, like we have the revelation today, but the Holy Spirit speaking through David, I think we get a picture here of ultimately David and this child will be reunited someday in heaven. And um, to me, this is consolation that God is not holding this child accountable for what David did, that he is seen as righteous when he enters into the kingdom of heaven. And so his pain was temporary, right? And But David's obviously will carry through his lifetime and we'll see um, many of these judgments carry out. Uh, just so you know, kind of like, a, you know, as we, I'm going to kind of finish up here tonight, um, how one of the kind of important thing I thought was kind of interesting is that David, he said, you remember the fourfold, right, with the sheep? David lost four of his um, sons. He had the one here from uh, the relationship with Bathsheba, right, the initial one uh, that he lost. In chapter 13, we're going to learn about Amnon, who uh, died from Absalom, killed him. And then Absalom, right, dies. And then Adonijah, right after David dies, there's a fight over the kingdom, and Solomon puts Adonijah to death. So there's a fourfold repayment for the death of Uriah um, from David's sons. Um, And, you know, just fulfilling the prophecy that um, God says about the sword not being removed from his house. That is where I want to finish tonight. Do you guys have, I like to do this on Wednesday. Do you have any questions? Pat, you're always good for questions. I love that. We can't have multiple wives. What about concubines? What about concubines? Wow. Now, did everybody hear that question before I address it? Mark's over there. He said, yes, people online, you don't get to hear. You have to ask Pat on Sunday about his uh, question. And um, any, anything else? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. And you would think he would have, and maybe he did check him when he first started accumulating lives. He never did. And to know him, uh, Abigail, mm-hmm. I mean, and you would think, and maybe he did, the Holy Spirit tried to prompt him, like, hey, you know, you need to do something. He like did, this. yeah. And it was there in Deuteronomy. I mean, it's not like it was revealed later that the king shouldn't do this. Um, yeah, and um, and he obviously knew his scripture, and I think the the I mean I think the same is true for the many of the kings where they were influenced significantly by the culture, and this was a thing that was very common for kings to do of those those that era and those that location, and uh, it's a it's a danger for all of us I guess you know there's things that we may take lightly in scripture because our culture approves of it. And um, we could end up in that same situation. And, and I think, to your point, it probably led to this situation, right? Because he was accumulating wives and his heart was drawn away from the Lord because of his lust. And, um, you know, it was never enough, I guess. Never enough wives. <laughs> I never noticed what the mouth was. I never noticed what you said about Joab. I never caught that verse that he had to know what went on in Judges. I'm just thinking, oh, that's Joab. He, he doesn't know anything. <laughs> I thought that was the first time I noticed that, too, because I always thought, well, yeah, somebody's going to be in the front line and die, so that'll just be Uriah. 
So, I mean, that's bad, but someone's got to be on the front line, but not really. Because, you know, Joab intentionally um, rolled out a poor military tactic in order to um, fulfill David's commandment. And he wanted David to know what he did. (laughs) So, cool. Chris? Yeah. When you look around there, all of a sudden now she's referred to as Bathsheba, his wife. Mm -hmm. Bride's wife. Yeah. Do you think that the child dying was that kind of like the sacrifice, so to speak, and then after that, now she's David's wife and it's a clean relationship? Yeah, so let me, I'm going to restate that in case someone's listening online, but I'll try to. Um, There's a transition in the scripture between the wife of Uriah, like we are reading, I think in uh, verse 15, it says that Uriah's wife, and then it, um, there's a transition as we get further along in the chapter to David's wife, which is Bathsheba. And so there's this switchover, right? And um, why is that? And is there, does that relate anything to the death of the child being a sacrifice? I really don't think the death of a child was a sacrifice Per se, I think it was a result of the sin. That's just my opinion. There are other opinions about this. I'd be happy to share them with you guys. Um, But the transition, I think, is very, to me, it's the uh, God reminding David when he did this act, when they created this child, they consummated this child, that was Uriah's wife, (laughs) right? When this act was carried out. But Later on, you know, we'll read about Solomon. You know, I think that starts out in verse 24. That's at the, David and Bathsheba are married now. And this gives an interesting, you know, I'll let Pastor Victor teach on this. But it's interesting because God does bless that marriage. Uh, Solomon, we know, is a kingly line. God blesses Solomon. I mean, he had his flaws, obviously. But he blesses Solomon greatly. Um, the Messiah will come through the marriage of David and Bathsheba, because one of their children is Nathan, which is an ancestor of Mary. And one of them is, well, adopted father is Joseph, who is an ancestor of Solomon, right? So both of them are from David and Bathsheba, Mary. And and so that's incredible to me that God does restore them. Uh, Even a marriage that starts out this poorly, God can restore and bless which is, I mean, that blows my mind. So don't let anyone say, well, my marriage started out so bad, so there's no hope for it. That's not true, because this one started out real bad, and God does bless that marriage. And I think it's just that transition is because we're done reminding David of this Uriah wife, because now the children are born from Dave, you know, truly in a biblical marriage model, right? So... Okay, I'll close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for uh, just gathering us here tonight, Lord. I pray you um, be with us during the season, Lord, as people are traveling. I thank you that uh, Jan made it here safely uh, from Kansas City, and uh, just so thankful for family as they're coming in town. I pray over people that are leaving town and traveling, Lord. I pray for protection upon them. Uh, Thank you for your word, Lord. Let us... Let us focus on relationship with you, Lord, this week, and, uh, and not necessarily knowledge, but drawing closer to you, Lord, repenting if there's sin in our life that we need to turn from. And Lord, I pray that we have the uh, humility to do that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.